Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies speaker series on public health. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President and Global Lead for Policy, Advocacy, and Communication. You're listening to a bonus episode covering the launch of a new report on food, nutrition, and the right to health issued from United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health, Dr. Tlaileng Mofekeng, and we will speak to the author herself about this important topic. If you're in the New York City area, please know that we've resumed our in-person Vital Talks events as well. You can join us to hear speakers on the world's leading public health topics and afterwards enjoy some light refreshments and socializing. We recently premiered the showing of a new documentary on the intersection of labor, human rights, health, and the tobacco industry. And later this year, we'll be premiering another film on air pollution, climate, and health. Please join us, or if you're unable to join us in person, look for the recordings on our website. You can also learn more about Vital Strategies there, or better yet, subscribe to our newsletter and stay informed at vitalstrategies.org slash vital news. Turning to this episode's topic, let's give today's interview on food justice and health a listen. Welcome, Dr. Traleng Mofokeng, a medical doctor with expertise advocating for universal health access, HIV care, youth-friendly services, and family planning. Dr. T, as she's affectionately known, is currently serving as the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health by the UN Human Rights Council, and she was appointed at its 44th session in July 2020, now in her third year. Dr. T, welcome to the Vital Talks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. You've just released a report entitled Food, Nutrition, and the Right to Health that identifies food systems as a major barrier and a major opportunity to access health and inequity. But before we talk about the report, I'd love um, for you to give us a very brief tour of your position as special rapporteur. Um, why does this position exist and what is the mandate and how does this report situate within that, within your role there? So my role as the Special Rapporteur is one of an independent expert to the United Nations. I'm appointed by the Human Rights Council to report on the state of the realization of the right to health across the world, including assessing, of course, and reporting to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly's member states. And some of the activities I'm involved in include legislative reform, human rights mainstreaming and standard setting, raising awareness on human rights, and also contributing in very different ways to governmental or judicial processes as well. And so this particular report that looks at food, nutrition, and the right to health has prepared for the General Assembly coming up in 2023, and it's really looking at the intersection of food, nutrition, and the right to health as one of my mandated activities um, that the UN expects of me every year. It's a tremendous resource uh, and and almost encyclopedic look at all the ways that food and food systems affect the health of different populations. Can you illuminate for us some of the key themes of this report? Absolutely. Um, it is important, you know, as my mandate's title is the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health that the report itself encompasses and incorporates important elements 
not only just looking at the legal framework um, on state obligations and human rights, but as the report does, talks about substantive equality in health, for example, it looks at food systems, food environments as drivers of health. I look at the issue of infectious disease and its relationship to food and nutrition, as well as non-communicable diseases. And I've also gone a step further in a report on food and health. I don't think people often expect to see um, any analysis on sexual and reproductive health, for example. But I've spoken about the importance of um, nutrition and food security for people who are pregnant, for example, for themselves as healthy pregnant people, but also for the health and well-being of the newborn. And so it's very important that in this report, um, I went a bit more medical than the traditional way of just reporting on food and health and also looked a little bit on the kinds of crises that the world is dealing with in terms of the climate change, conflict, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic as well. And more importantly, looking at issues of food governance and regulation in food systems for overall health. And of course, all of that through a human rights approach and analysis um, that's anti-racist and also anti-colonial in approach. It really is incredible how you've demonstrated that food touches all these areas that may not uh, that may not be top of mind when people think about you know food or the intersection of food and rights. Can we touch a little bit on the last one you mentioned? How do the effects of colonialism reverberate in the food system today, and and what com- communities face the kinds of barriers to health that they face? Absolutely. And I think it's important, of course, to talk about colonialism and coloniality and racism, for example, and all of these other systems of oppression, both in terms of their legacy, but also being very aware that those systems are still functioning today. And that the outcomes that we see in health related to food and nutrition are directly linked to the extent to which populations are able to have food security to thrive and have nutritious, adequate supply of food. And those systems have placed certain communities in particular societal positions, in particular power asymmetries and hierarchies that therefore takes away that key opportunity for health and well-being. If you look at the issues of land dispossession, we often talk about it in very economical terms around Uh, extraction of minerals from the global south to enrich global north countries. But we don't often talk about that legacy of land dispossession and what it has meant for the tradition, the very intimate tradition and culture of food, what it has meant for the healthy um, of the soil, right? What it means for the turnover of food and how quickly food now has to be made and serviced, right, in order to service supermarkets and the high fast food chains and flooding markets, by the way, with unhealthy foods and beverages as options. This is also linked to the traditional ways of respecting nature and the traditional ways of uh, treating and respecting seeds, for example, but also respecting of seasons. The fact that you can get any food, any vegetables, whenever you want, even out of season, that is already an indicator Um, I think, of how much the food system needs, not just regulation and support, but we really need to get back to respecting indigenous knowledge 
and and indigenous knowledge systems as well, and not just see them as um, how they've been portrayed portrayed to many of us as unrefined, unscientific, but really understand their true value in understanding nature, in understanding our place as human beings in nature, and that in fact the climate crisis is one example that has led to a lot of famine, a lot of crisis, both urgent, emergent, and as we have seen in major cities like New York City with the recent flooding, and yet indigenous communities, communities in Africa have already been dealing with these kinds of crises, but because their knowledge systems are not seen as sophisticated or as academic, they were not listened to. And so there's a lot that this report tries to do on that level of um, talking about issues and causes of marginalization and naming that power as racism and colonialism in terms of land dispossession and extraction of natural resources. But it also tries to remind us that there are traditions and cultural identities that are already marginalized, who have been severely impacted by the um, impact of climate crisis. And those people and those communities already had the knowledge and the know-how and the and the and the advice how to actually prevent some of these crises, and yet they disproportionately are impacted by the crises that we face right now that has led to many of them being internally displaced people as well, having other human rights also then violated. And you also, and you touched upon this, talked about how that intersects with and and you address the uh, the 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 topic of power, the power that corporations have over our health, uh, and over our systems, um, and sometimes now we call that the commercial determinants of health. How has the commercial determinants of health framework presented a different perspective on food environments as well? Indeed, um, it is together with social, political, and commercial determinants of health that have an influence on dietary patterns, and they reinforce nutritional and health disparities. And, um, you know, these determinants have driven the availability and accessibility of unhealthy food and beverages particularly. And um, those kinds of foods undergo very high levels of processing, and they are also, you know, filled with additives and colorants and flavorants. They're very high in sugar and salt um, and fat content to a point where, of course, as now we see in the world, we are dealing with diet-related non-communicable diseases in numbers that even the health systems had not, um, you know, anticipated. So the, the human, the adverse human outcomes as well as the adverse planetary health outcomes, I suggest we need to look both and demand some level of accountability in terms of commercial determinants of health. Sometimes we tend to to, to separate sort of the climate environmental justice from the health and human um, justice and health justice. And I think those two are very important um, to look at together, especially when you are talking and addressing corporations, right, which are often headquartered in very high-income countries in the global north, and these extractive uh, practices continue, right? It's extractive capitalistic um, uh, practices, and only they care about is profit-making. So they're not even taking care of the planet. They're not taking care of the people who work in these food chains to get the food to our houses and supermarkets, 
they are also not taking care, of course, ultimately of the entire food system. And so the resource that food is, um, is something that we need to hold them accountable, not just health outcomes, but also the health um, of their own uh, employees, but also the agricultural sector, for example, and ultimately take it all the way back to the responsibilities we have to the planet. Your report has taken on this incredible, incredibly difficult and complex problem and describes multiple entrenched systems. Uh, in terms of solutions, what kinds of policy recommendations are identified in this report? And what's your hope in terms of how governments or public health experts take up the call for these solutions? So I think one of the important things, um, and I suppose being um, a woman and an activist, this uh, was always going to happen in my report, right? As part of um, policy coherence that I call for in the report as one of the examples of um, good practices in various parts of the world, but also what member states should incorporate more, is also to understand that women are an integral part of the food system, that they perform multiple and very central roles um, across the spectrum of, of activities. And to understand, for example, as we move forward, um, post a 2030 agenda, for example, as we take stock right now of where we are in terms of trying to meet some of the sustainable development goals, um, targets that we had set for ourselves, that we can't do that if we are leaving women in these persistently patriarchal structures, right, that we have imposed and continue to impose uh, particular roles on them without affording them equal access to land, for example, to finance, to technology, to services compared with men. And so I think that's one something that's ten tangible, that is a recommendation that member states can absolutely put their energies towards because everyone understands that sustainable development goal number two, which is food, and three, which is health and well-being, really goes hand in hand with five, which is, which is gender equality. And the report gives um, just that one example, but also a solution in how we can think about gender equality as well at the intersection of health and food and nutrition and really being intentional about thinking about women in terms of access to land, title deeds, financing, even if it's microfinance, but also big financing for venture capitalists, for example, but also access to technology and digital literacy, as well as other important technical services that they require to participate fully in these important sectors of society. I love that you've identified that the solution isn't just what we do, but how we do it. Who's at the table? Who has power in the situation? Who gets to determine what the solutions are? That's really powerful. Are there other recommendations you'd like to pull out of the report? I think this one is a little bit more philosophical. Um, and I think I must be honest that I, I am trying to appeal to as many lawmakers, legislators, policymakers, global leaders, um, ambassadors, and, and just leaders everywhere. And I think I wrote the report intentionally in a language that's accessible. But I think one thing that for me, I would love for people to, to take with them as a nugget of what this report is about and to try to remind people is our intrinsic and very close relationship that we have to food as humans in that food is more than just the nutrition that it provides. And besides being one of the most common sources of pleasure, 
food is also a social glue, that as a concept, food is certainly more than nutrition. It has always been a special and a glorious expression of the self, of culture, of societal, economic, and political autonomy. And for me, autonomy is the ultimate measure of being human. The ability to self-determine is something that drives me every day as the special rapporteur on the right to health. And that so much around food, nutrition, and the right to health is important to the realization, not just of our highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, but to the restoration of our dignity. Taking into account the racism and the kinds of structural discrimination and injustices that happen in the world. The restoration of dignity is central to this work, and I'm hoping that this report is one contribution to that bigger goal of ensuring that people live dignified lives. That's incredible, and I love how, you know, if if you want to get to know somebody, ask them what their favorite foods are and why, and you'll also often hear about the foods that they're mother made for them or the food that that shows up in their culture and has special meaning, you know, and, and maybe connected to a holiday or ceremony. Um, and I love that you've brought that to the fore in your work. Is there anything that surprised you while you were researching and writing this report or or in the way it's 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 being accepted? I think for me, I not so much as a surprise, but I think it was a, a good affirmation in that I did make the right um, decision in terms of doing this theme that are, that addresses both food, nutrition, and the right to health. Um, you know, just having, of course, participated in the high-level meetings and the processes at the UN General Assembly, it's it's important to realize that um, to reach many, if not all, of the goals, we have to pay particular attention to how the current crises affect food and food nutrition and food security and how those ultimately lead to poor health outcomes and that any solutions we have, any kinds of investments we have that we make in, in the economy, that we make in the education sector, that we make in technology manufacturing, won't be successful, for example, without the political will and political leadership that really pays attention to the underlying determinants of health. And so I think for me, it was important, um, but also quite quite affirming that the report has been received um, as positively and that people have understood um, the kinds of doors um, and the corridors I'm trying to take us on in um, through this theme of human rights, um, the theme of being accountable, of reminding member states of their obligation to protect, to fulfill and promote the right to health through legislation, of course, through sound policy making through research, investment in technology and infrastructure, but understanding that ultimately um, that there are there is the entire food chain and the entire food cycle, and that we need to address you know specific impacts of business conflict in public private settings, but we also have to be intentional, and I think it's the intent for me um, that people have picked up on in that we can't just carry on business as usual. I think your your activist roots and soul are showing uh, in this interview. What's something that a listener could do today to help bring about this future, this equitable, healthier future that you're imagining in this report? 
is that states have a responsibility and an obligation to ensure that they take international human rights laws and standards and all of these consensus documents and translate them into a national health plan that has a budget that goes with it. And in that, we need to hold them accountable in the kinds of food systems that they have built and sustained. And in fact, encourage them, like I have done in this report, recommend really specific things in how they can build food systems that are based on culture, identity, tradition, social and gender equity of the local communities that provide healthy, safe, accessible, affordable, diversified and nutritionally and culturally appropriate diets and food options. And I think it's very important that as we move forward um, into the future in a in a post-2030 world, there will be an agenda that is set for all of us that we really help to identify, you know, through accountability, monitoring, review, and redress, where progress has been made but where it's lacking, and then allow really meaningful participation of rights holders, people on the ground whose lives depend on these very systems that we are talking about today, to be meaningful participants and that their participation in these global um, agenda setting uh, spaces as well as regionally up the way to the sub-local and, 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 and um, uh, municipal level, that they are involved in, in, in determining the kind of future, the kinds of community, the kind of food systems that will serve them best and really go a step further in terms of resourcing, like I said, and making sure that women, LGBTIQ plus populations, for example, uh, migrant communities and refugees, people who are experiencing homelessness are also seen not just as people who are intrinsically vulnerable and needing protection from the state, but as people with dignity, with people with autonomy, who should also be part of this conversation as well. Dr. T, I want to thank you for your tireless, tireless efforts on behalf of people who've been made marginalized by um, the systems that surround us and for connecting this, uh, the, the human rights to the food and health systems and for taking a few minutes with us today to describe your new report, which I urge everybody uh, to find at the uh, United Nations website. Thank you, Dr. T. For the second portion of today's Vital Talks, podcast. We're speaking with Isabel Barbarossa, Senior Associate at the Global Center for Legal Innovation on Food Environments at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We're also speaking with Luyanda Machicha, Associate Director of Communication of the Food Policy Program at Vital Strategies. Welcome, Luyanda. Thank you, Steve. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you both. And you've both just heard the interview with Dr. T about the fantastic new report, Food, Nutrition, and the Right to Health. Uh, before we get in, I'd love to learn a little bit about both of you just in a minute or two. Um, Isabel, would you please talk a little bit about your current role and, and why this report matters in your world? Sure, Steve. So as you mentioned, I work at the O'Neill Institute. And a few years ago, within the O'Neill Institute, we launched the Global Center for Legal Innovation on Food Environments. And essentially what we do is that we live in the intersection between law and public health. 
And we try to use the law as a tool to build healthier food environments. Um, we do a lot of work um, from a rights-based perspective, so we rely heavily on human rights frameworks. It's part of the core of our identity, I would say. So really, Dr. T's report you know, is, is wonderful because it really does a great job at applying rights-based frameworks to this issue of you know, how can we build better food environments for everyone and make sure that they're equitable. Um, at the Global Center, we do basically applied research, and I always emphasize that, that it is applied. You know, we, we are researchers, but we're always concerned with, you know, what are the real challenges that are happening on the ground? And we try to, you know, bridge that gap between research and the wonderful work that activists and policymakers are doing. Um, we also do some technical assistance, which is hard to define because really it can take different shapes, but... You know, sometimes we submit briefs to court cases, we do analytical reports, you know, we send materials to governments when they open consultations, same with international organizations. So it really can be a little bit of everything. And we also do some capacity strengthening. So essentially that's cross-learning. We partner with different research and teaching institutions all over the world. And we do courses together. We have some also internship programs here at the O'Neill Institute. We do conferences. Um, so that's a little bit about us. Great. And uh, Luyanda, I'd love to ask you the same question. Tell us a little bit about your work and how this report intersects with it. Thank you, Steve. Um, so I work with civil society organizations and governments in several countries supported by the Food Policy Program in the Global South, such as my home country, South Africa. and. Our commitment to these countries is to help with advocacy efforts towards the attainment of policies that can reduce the availability of and access to ultra-processed products associated with non-communicable diseases. We do this by applying ourselves to the design of evidence-based communication campaigns that drive public demand for and policymaker interest in laws that reduce consumption of these products in an effort to protect health. Uh, we don't do this work alone, so we work very closely with partners like ISA, who are experts in research, in evidence-gathering efforts, uh, in legal work, as well as advocacy, to help us achieve the same goal. Um, and this report is very, very, very important because it helps to show where our work fits into the bigger picture. It helps us to really think about how these policies, which can often come across as very technical, inaccessible documents, um, you know, how these policies actually contribute to the attainment of the right to health. Many of the countries supported by this program have had very difficult histories rooted in colonialism and various other ways in which the rights of people um, have been suppressed. And I think having an opportunity to take work that we do on the food policy program and set it against a document like this report, which places food, um, the attainment um, of good nutrition um, in the same conversation or the same space of discourse as human rights is very, very important. And I'm really, really hopeful that the partners we work with will use it as a tool to help advance our work further. I, I love that the perspective of both of you helps bridge the, you know, what to do, which is kind of identified in this encyclopedic, 
is the word I used earlier, but encyclopedic report about food systems with the how to do it and what to do right now and in specific contexts. Um, what are what types of interventions are you looking at or policies that you think could be implemented right now to address the influence of the food and beverage industry or, or to address the consumption of unhealthy foods um, in some of the countries you're working in? Maybe I'll start with you, Luyanda, and then we can move on to Issa. That's an excellent question, Steve. Um, you know, as you've mentioned, and as Dr. T discussed, the industry has a stronghold on our food supply that is not only harmful to health, but also unjust, and that's unacceptable. Um, they've had an opportunity to pervade um, um, our society and really influence how we eat. They have exposed us to life-threatening diseases through their business practices, and these challenges require legal interventions that will trigger long-standing and systemic changes, right? So um, one of the ways that we could do that based on the research that we've done and the learnings we've gained working in various contexts around the world is that we can use interventions like strong taxes of sugary drinks and junk food. We can restrict children's exposure to marketing of these products, which are very harmful to health. We can um, uh, uh, demand the mandatory use of front of package warning labels on these products and also remove them from public institutions used by um, our communities, such as schools and hospitals. There's evidence that these legal measures work. For example, in South Africa, just two years after we adopted a tax on sugary drinks, we saw a 28% reduction in sugary drinks consumption, and as a result, reduced calorie intake, which is quite significant. And across the ocean in Chile, we saw significant declines in purchases of food and beverages that are high in sugar, saturated fat and salt, only a couple of years after its government introduced a comprehensive law that mandates the use of black octagonal warnings and bans child-directed marketing of these products. So this is to say that systemic problems require systemic solutions. And Isa, I'm sure that resonates with you as a lawyer who's looking at the legal and regulatory frameworks. Would you like to build on that? Yes, Steve, absolutely. I completely agree with everything that Luyanda has just said. Um, and thinking about the role of law and policy, really, um, I think the first thing I would say is that they can either work as a barrier or as a tool towards better health outcomes for everyone, like I was saying before. And that's really up to us, right? I think many times the law you know, and policy, they end up reinforcing status quo and other times it can be really transformational. We end up naturalizing, I think, many of the things that we, you know, the, the environments that we live in today. So, for example, when we go in supermarkets, I think that's an experience that a lot of people can relate. And just, you know, even when you have the resolve to eat healthier and to buy healthier products, it can just be overwhelming and confusing the amount of options and things that say or hint that they're healthy when they really aren't. Um, and that's a reality that I think is common across different countries and different populations. Um, and that's the kind of thing that sometimes comes across to us as, you know, it is what it is. It's always been like that. It will always be like that. And that's not true. I think a lot of the things that are shaping our food environments today, they weren't like that, you know, if we think back some decades or, you know, centuries. And they don't have to be like that if we think ahead. 
Um, so the example of labeling is great. You know, we've already been seeing some of those changes come to life. Other examples that Lou mentioned are very true as well. You know, marketing restrictions and just making sure that we're not constantly bombarded from very early ages with, you know, advertising of products that are really bad for our health. That's very important. And I think fiscal measures, you know, making sure that healthy products are accessible and that unhealthy products are not very cheap and, you know, widespread and just all over the place um, like they are today. All of those factors, when they come together, they really shape how people go about their daily lives and they ultimately influence health outcomes. And then the last thing that I wanted to add um, in, in answering this question is that there is no silver bullet. There is no one of those policies that will be able to change, you know, how these food environments are set up and that will be able to empower people to take, you know, other decisions when it comes to their diets. It's really, you know, a, a combination of all of those different policy reforms that we should be striving for. One of the through lines of this whole podcast is, and, and you just touched on it, he says that connection of the human experience to, you know, these policies and regulations that can touch, you know, potentially help or poorly impact millions of people at a time, uh, even though this is kind of a an area where we think, you know, a food as a personal choice, as very, you know, personal thing, and it's up to the individual to make their own decisions. And yet you're, you're demonstrating that it's really not. Um, Luyanda, I was really struck by Dr. T's notion of food as culture, you know, food as something that's intrinsically connected to the human experience and who we think we are and, and how we experience the world. What, what about you? Would you like to build upon that idea? Absolutely, Steve. Um, as humans, we all have a history. We all have an origin. We come from somewhere. Um, and so food is not only important for nutrition and keeping us healthy, but it's symbolic of the places that we come from. And I think my biggest concern, um, having worked in the space for as long as I've worked in the space, is just the observations that we've made of how industries' tactics to market and sell the products that they sell is not just a way for them to make a profit, but I think that it might even have an impact in the erasure of food as we've always known it, right? So I'll give an example. One of the most important things I value is being able to go and visit my grandmother who lives in the north and having her cook for me a very traditional meal that is whole, that is not filled with preservatives, that hasn't been processed, you know. And the fact that I am reminded of how my grandmother used to eat when I visit her, uh, you know, by taking a six hour drive away from the city I live in is concerning. And I think that governments have an obligation to act swiftly with urgency to practice stewardship in making sure that these policies that we're discussing on this podcast today are not just used to achieve the singular goal of applying warnings or the singular goal of applying taxes on healthy food, but that these policy interventions symbolize a broader move or greater commitment to making sure that we stop industry in its tracks and that people living in generations to come can benefit from indigenous food that is whole, that is nutritious, rich in history, 
and that represents who we are as people. Issa, I'm curious, are there other aspects of this report or lessons from your work that, that come out? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was thinking about, you know, this interaction between people and, you know, industry and government. Um, and you mentioned it, Steve, you said that, you know, you, you were highlighting the fact that oftentimes this whole discussion is framed around lifestyle or individual choices. And that really isn't the case, because how can we talk about choices when, you know, there are people all over the world who don't have you know, access to healthy food? How can we talk about choice when we're constantly being bombarded, like I was saying before, with advertisements of unhealthy food um, since we're very, very, you know, young. Um, so I think that just centering the role of the food and beverage industry in shaping our environments and pushing people towards unhealthy foods, I think that's really important because it makes us move away from, you know, talking about lifestyle and talking about choice and really talking about the environment and what is constraining people's choice, what is constraining people's autonomy, which connects with what Dr. T was saying before. And also, of course, government, you know, and, and governments really having to regulate the food and beverage industry, the ultra processed foods industry, um, and, and not only having the power to do so, but having the obligation to do so. I think that also comes across um, very clearly from Dr. T's report. And one thing that I would like to highlight in this regard is that, you know, from the legal perspective, many, many times we end up, you know, trying to justify why policy reforms are needed, why they are acceptable. And we can do that. You know, we have done that for front-of-back warning labels and in taxation and marketing restrictions. But the point that I really think is important is for us to question whether our current situation, whether the status quo is acceptable from a legal perspective. And the answer is no, right? It's not acceptable for us to be constrained in this way by the industry of ultra-processed products. It's not acceptable for people to be pushed towards these unhealthy products on a daily basis. Um, so really the policy reforms is, you know, they're really something that are needed and they're not only rights compliant. I think that governments um, and states in general, they, they have an obligation, they have a duty to regulate um, private actors and corporations. And this is an important narrative change that we need to, to implement, you know, and, and stop thinking about these things as just rights compliant and start thinking about them really as the materialization of human rights obligations. And I think Dr. T does a fantastic job in that. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that, Luyanda? Um, I think that it's fantastic that people are gradually seeing food insecurity and poor access to nutrition as the root cause of many of you know the different aspects of health. And this report can really help to accelerate our thinking about how to address this in ways that are sustainable. I also think that the report is incredibly symbolic. It's authored by Dr. T, who is the first Black and African woman to occupy the position of the UN Special Rapporteur for Health. And, you know, by no means can the experience of one Black woman speak for the experiences of all Black women, but having her perspective and breadth of experience, knowledge, passion, and commitment to the cause really makes the technical content come alive and it makes it feel that much more real for communities that are otherwise ignored or marginalized when you think about you know, global food policy making. And I hope that this really sets the precedent for how 
governments and various other stakeholders approach policymaking going forward that we always take into account the very real and lived experiences of the communities we purport to support so that even when these policies are implemented, that they have the impact that we intended for them to have, that the rights or the needs that they protect first are the needs of the people that we know are marginalized and um, the most vulnerable in our society. Isa, what do you think is next now that this report is out in the world? How do we make sure that we that it has the maximum impact? That's a great question, Steve. I think it's really important for this report not to be an end in itself. And traditionally, what we see is that when special rapporteurs release their reports, um, they really come to life when they're integrated into policy processes that are happening on the ground, right? And this can take different forms. Sometimes it's judges that are analyzing a case and, you know, look to those standards and look to the way they are being interpreted by special rapporteurs um, as a tool to decide the cases that are in front of them. Other times is, you know, when certain bills are being discussed in Congress or regulatory agencies are thinking about certain measures, they really also feel reassured when they see something like that. So I think it's up to advocates all over the world, people that are litigating, you know, to really look to this report and use it and give it life so that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stop when Dr. T presents it to the General Assembly, but rather it's a continuous process, a growing process um, that can really be instrumental in realizing the human rights of people all over the world um, in their contexts. Isabel Barbosa and Luyanda Machicha, thank you both for appearing on the Vital Talks podcast and for leaving us so much to think about and identifying a few really positive and concrete next steps for us to take on this really complex issue. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure to speak with you and with Luyanda and with Dr. T, of course. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, appreciate the opportunity to share our perspectives and hope that we can continue advocating for food systems that are more just. Listeners, we have more interesting topics and guests coming up on the Vital Talks podcast, including a special series exploring pathways to public health leadership. We'll talk to current public health leaders from across the globe. We'll hear about their journey and how we can diversify the leadership of global public health. If you're interested in how global health can become more effective or enjoy today's conversation, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit us at vitalstrategies.org, subscribe to our newsletter to find out more news, resources, and insights tailored to your interests, like NCD prevention, urban health, environmental health, and much more. If you have any feedback or thoughts, please feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org. This is Steve Hamill signing off for the Vital Talks podcast. <music>